Exodus 20, 15, and Matthew 19, 16 through 22. Exodus 20, 15, you shall not steal. Matthew 19, 16 through 22. And behold, a man came up to him saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. This is the word of the Lord. God, let's pray together. Jesus, would you now take your holy word and would you use it as a surgeon uses a scalpel? For your word is sharper than any two-edged sword, and would you use it now to divide soul from marrow, joint from spirit, and would you help us to see that you are good? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Two Saturdays ago, Timothy Bontrager was lumbering down the 3400 block of Tallydale Lane in Sarasota, Florida, watching his shadow jump from streetlight to streetlight in the middle of the night, and he saw an opportunity. So he went into the house that was not his two weeks ago. And the next thing he hears is a woman's voice saying, Who are you and what are you doing in my house? And Timothy Bontrager sits up on the couch and rubs his eyes and profusely apologizes to this very scared woman in her home for falling asleep during his attempted robbery. And she runs to the telephone, and she calls 911, and Timothy Bontrager walks around the living room very slowly and exits the same sliding glass door in which he came. Did you hear about this? And 10 minutes later, the Sarasota, Florida Police Department picks up Timothy, walking down the street, and they find on him the woman's checkbook and credit cards, her purse, and They bring him in for questioning, and they said, excuse me, do you have anything to say in your defense? And he said, yeah. The night before, I should have got a better night's sleep. (laughs) The eighth commandment, when you read the ten in our survey of the ten commandments, is very straightforward, isn't it? Thou shalt not steal. It's simple enough for a young child to understand. The point of the sermon is this. Your dignity is seen by your stewardship. Lest you be defined and then destroyed by what you have. Your dignity, as one who is made in the image of God, which I'll talk about in just a minute, is seen in the stewardship of the possessions that God has given you. Lest You become consumed by them, defined by them, and then subsequently destroyed by what you have. So we're going to look at the Eighth Commandment together, and we're going to look at it in three ways by pairs. 
There are two assumptions that this commandment makes. There are two ways to steal, and there are two ways to heal. Two assumptions, two ways to steal, two ways to heal. Let's jump in. There are two assumptions that, that this commandment makes. The Eighth Commandment assumes, first of all, for the note-takers out there, it assumes that there is such a thing as personal property. The Eighth Commandment would not make any sense if the Bible didn't assume that there was personal property. You can think of you know, Psalm, um, the Psalms, which teach us that everything is the Lord. And yet the Lord has given people property over which they are to steward for his glory. Psalm 24.1 says the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof, everyone who roams on it is his. Psalm 50 says that the Lord owns every beast of the field. He owns a cattle on a thousand hills, the psalmist says. Every bird of the air, everything that crawls along the fields is the Lord's. Psalm 8.6 says, that not only is everything God's, but that God has given us dominion over the things he has given for us to possess. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands, the psalmist says. You have put all things under his feet, speaking about the role and responsibility of humanity to be good stewards of what God has given us. This psalm assumes that personal property is a biblical idea, or else the, psalm, the command wouldn't make sense, right? Simple enough. God gave specific property to very specific people. He gave Israel a land. And within the nation of Israel, he gave every tribe a certain allotment of those lands. And in fact, they did not have the right to permanently sell those lands because every 50 years at the year of Jubilee, the land returned to the original owner of that tribe or of that family within Israel. The earth is the Lord's. Or outside of Israel... You see, Abraham, whenever he bought a burial plot, he honored the Hittites' ownership of that land. And when Naboth refused to give King Ahab the land, Ahab had Naboth killed. And when the Lord came and rebuked King Ahab for his sin of murder, what did he say? He says, you, you have taken, he said this through Elijah, you have taken what you did not possess. Assumption, Naboth did possess it. Personal property is assumed in the Bible. It's very important to understand, or else this commandment does not make sense. Your dignity is seen by your stewardship, lest you be defined and then destroyed by what you have. Your dignity is not defined by the amount of possessions that you have, but it is seen as an extension of the way that you use those possessions. And all of us have that opportunity because we all are given personal property. Christian ethics are different than the economics of the world. Christian economics are different. Capitalism and free market capitalism, money is yours to do whatever you want. In socialism, it is the state who determines what the community needs are. But in Scripture, Christian economics says that you are a steward of what God has given you, and you are responsible to steward those gifts in ways that honor and glorify Him. Stewardship is taking care of something for someone else on their terms. So kids, like when you steward a toy, if you borrow a toy from a friend, you take care of that toy. You can play with it and enjoy it, but it really ultimately is your friend's toy that he's just letting you steward or have or borrow for a little while. Assumption number one, the Bible assumes that personal property exists. Assumption number two, 
The Eighth Commandment presupposes a strong work ethic. This is very, very important. We see this in the Fourth Commandment when the requirement to work six days and to take a break on the seventh, to rest. After the fall, work becomes toilsome and burdensome, but it is necessary and it is beneficial. God called us to work even before the fall of mankind, didn't he? Which is why for some of us who are out of work, you feel like you've lost a part of your dignity. And indeed, because we have associated the only work we can do with our occupation, that's a good and right feeling to feel. But there's work that's broader than just your occupation, which you can still do even though you're employed. You haven't lost your dignity. Dignity is given to you as an image bearer by the triune God. But you feel like you have because work is intrinsic to what it means to be a human being. And it assumes that there is a strong work ethic. And work is the opposite of theft. Let the thief no longer steal, Paul says in Ephesians, but rather let him label, let him labor humbly, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. The Eighth Commandment assumes there is personal property, and it assumes that you're a hard worker. Now, your dignity, your dignity is seen by your stewardship, lest you be defined and then destroyed by what you have. Now, having talked about two assumptions, let's talk about two ways to steal. When, um, when Matthew was describing the death of Jesus, who did he put Jesus between on the cross? Two thieves, right? Tertullian used to say that the thieves represent two different ways to miss the gospel. One is license. You do whatever you want to. You're saved by grace, so go sin as much as you want because grace always covers the bounds of your sin. And the other was legalism. Do, it, do the things that God tells you. Check off every box. Make sure that God looks at you and sees that you're being a good boy and therefore he'll give you more blessings because you're good. Both of those, the early church fathers said, are fallacious. And then he goes on to say that there's also two ways to steal. The first way is taking from others. Just like there's a robber on Jesus' right and Jesus' left on the cross. You take from other people. You steal by refusing to honor the stewardship rights of other human beings. When you take either overtly or covertly, either out in the open or very secretly and stealthfully, you are taking something that God has given that person to steward. So even when you take from somebody else, you are sinning not only against that person, but against the Lord himself who has given that person the right of stewardship over that idea, that thing, that material possession, perhaps. There are crass forms of stealing, like Timothy Bontrager walking into a house and taking someone's purse and checkbook, stealing petty cash at work. There are also some very subtle ways of stealing, aren't they? Aren't there? Like shading numbers when you do your tax returns. Not being honest with people about the work that you've done. Changing the number of hours and your billable rates. There's subtle ways of stealing as an employee at work that face us every day. Um, personal phone calls when you're at work. Checking your email while you're on the clock. As much as it is a temptation, checking your Facebook account, 
surfing YouTube. Like, you're stealing from your employer in these moments. That's a form of stealing. It's very subtle, but it is a form of stealing. Taking longer lunch breaks, taking products from the company that aren't yours. Listen, all these are, are subtle ways of stealing, and many of us, who, perhaps even who of us in this room, have not done some of those things, and repentance is therefore right and good thing for us all to enjoy this morning, self-included. In Belfast, Ireland, there was a great revival that broke out in 1922 and 1923, and um, when they preached the gospel, tons of blue-collar workers in the shipyards came to know Jesus, and they were so utterly convicted by the fact that the Lord had saved them from their sin and he had changed their life, that they, in obedience, went back to their homes and they got all the tools that they had stolen from their employers and they brought them back to the shipyards. And the shipyard companies were so shocked at the number of tools that had come back, been brought back by these workers, that they had to build additional sheds in the shipyard to house all of this, you know, this new influx of inventory that they didn't know that they had lost. In fact, the shipyard companies, it's documented, actually wrote a memo to the shipyard workers in Belfast in 1923 and said, stop bringing back tools. We don't have any more room. Like, that would be amazing, wouldn't it? To see the gospel so break out in our lives that it changes the way that we view our possessions and what is and what isn't ours. And you walk forth in fruit of the gospel and you reconcile with those from whom you have stolen things. Not only can employees steal from their employers, but employee, employers can steal from their employees when they don't pay them an adequate wage, when they overburden them outside the bounds of their do- job description and they take advantage of them, when an employer will market a product to have qualities that it just simply does not have in order to sell it, when it raises the price of their product beyond market value because they're greedy for gain, they steal. There are all kinds of subtle ways, which is why the larger confession that Nathan read for us tries to be so specific about all these different ways that we, we actually break the Eighth Commandment. It's not, like you're just, it's not like stealing in one way that you're thinking of is the only way to break the Eighth Commandment. There are a myriad of ways to do it, and you have to have your eyes opened by the gospel to see that perhaps none of us in this room are actually free from breaking this commandment, even though it is among all of them the most plain and simple. When Jesus was telling um, uh, the Pharisees and the disciples, who's preaching to them in the Sermon on the Mount, one of the things that the Pharisees said is that Jesus is therefore saying that the Old Testament is exactly what you must do to be right with God. And so the Pharisees wanted to keep every jot and tittle of the Old Testament law. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 I'm not coming after your interpretation of the Old Testament. I'm actually coming after the extent with which you believe it covers all the behaviors that are wrong in human life. And Jesus says, it's not just that you commit adultery by having sex with someone who's not your wife or your husband. It's that you commit sex men when you look at a woman lustfully. It's not that you break the commandment when you murder somebody. It's when you hate somebody in your heart. And the same could be said of stealing. It's not that you just break the eighth commandment when you take something that's not yours, but even when you covet what is not yours? What good is it, my brothers, when someone says he has faith but, has, but does not have works? Can that faith save him? 
James says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, can one of you say to him, well, go in peace and be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body? What good is that? So faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. James is saying, friends, listen, your faith is dead if it is not accompanied by works that are consistent with you being a steward of all that the Lord has given you. And one of the ways that you stop being a steward is that you take from someone else. But secondly, you can take from God. And while taking from someone else is indeed taking from God because God owns all things, the Eighth Commandment not only says you should not steal, but whenever you read a commandment and it's in the negative, it has a not before it, it's a command for the positive. And so what would you say would be the positive way of the Eighth Commandment? How would you articulate that? You would say the Eighth Commandment says, be generous. Share what is yours or steward what you have in a faithful way, which means to share. So the Eighth Commandment is saying to us, be generous. The Bible assumes that generosity is not something you add to the list when you become a Christian for four or five years. It assumes right from the start that you are a generous person, that your heart is changed. That's why the passage that Kendall read after he read the Eighth Commandment in Matthew chapter 19 with the rich young ruler. Why it's so devastating for the rich young ruler because he thought he had it made in the shade. And then Jesus says, okay, well now go give everything away. In other words, be generous. But, 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 but. And that cut him to the quick. He didn't know what to say and so he walked off very sad. It's the same story that you and I have that Jesus says to us and we walk off very reflective, very sad. And the question is, Will you obey what Christ says and be generous with what you have, or, or will you not steward what he's given you? In 1925, uh, when William Tyndale was trying to write the Bible in English, he was trying to figure out in Philippians chapter 2, when in our Bibles it says, Jesus did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. In the Tyndale Bible, one of the early English Bibles, Tyndale wrote, Jesus did not consider it robbery to be like God. But he humbled himself. In other words, Jesus was God. And it wouldn't be robbery of Jesus to pretend to be like God, like it is for you and I to pretend to be like God, because he was God. But though he had everything in the world, Jesus refused to allow all the benefits of heaven that were given to him and rightfully his, he refused to enjoy those for your sake and for mine so that we, who are being made stewards of God's possession, might be able to be content with what God has provided for us in his son, his son being for us the greatest possession in the world, and that being enough for his people. The generosity of Christ is knows no bounds because Jesus has given you his own righteousness. That is, he has taken the last will and testament of his Father to him. And he has said, I'm going to change the name and I'm going to add yours. And so all that my Father has is now yours. But we have a hard time seeing that because we look through the lens of our possessions. And it's hard for us to recognize that our dignity is something that is given to us by the one who made us. And therefore, we are to walk in our stewardship of those possessions. 
with generous hearts. But yet we let them define us. And as soon as they begin to define us, the neighborhood you live in, the clubs you're a part of, who you are, the subtleties of placing your identity, your socioeconomic status, in these things begin to rob you. They begin to steal from you. And so you cease to be fully human and you start to become enslaved to something like money. Money is not bad. I mean, money is, is money good or bad? It's like, it's like asking, is fire good or bad? It depends on where it is, right? Like a fire in a fireplace is beautiful. It gives warmth to the whole house, but you catch the rug on fire and you're in trouble. It's the same with money. If you let money stop being an extension of your dignity as one of God's stewards over what he has given you possession of, and you start letting it define who you are, then you're going to catch your heart on fire. Malachi 3.8 is very blunt. He says, Will you rob God? Yet you are robbing me. And they say, But how have we robbed you? And he answers, By not giving that minimum portion of one's income to the work of the Lord, which was required in the Old Testament, which is the tithe, 10%. Okay, maybe some of you saw this coming. You have to give one sermon on money every year. This is sort of it, so forgive me. I hate preaching on money, but here it is. Listen, it's important. But is the tithe biblical? 10%, your tithe biblical. When people ask me that, I say the tithe is biblical kind of like animal sacrifice is biblical. Like in the Old Testament, you're required to give animal sacrifices because Jesus hadn't come yet. The tithe is biblical because it was the, the estate tax for Israel. It was 10%. And so, well, is it biblical? Tell me how much money. Listen, in the New Testament... The command is to give joyfully, regularly, and give till it hurts, if you will. Be generous. And so for some of you, dare I say, 10% is like a drop in the bucket. It does not make one bit of difference in your lifestyle. And for others of you, it is a huge stretch. And so friends, you have freedom to give to the Lord but the question is, are you being a good steward of what he's given you, lest you be defined by and destroyed by what you have? How do we heal? You heal, first of all, by recognizing that money is an extension of your dignity, but money cannot define you. Money can't define you. It is, an, it is an inanimate object that cannot define you. But the power that you give to money can begin to subtly define you. What's defining you actually is not money. It's the idol of your heart that's defining you. It's the power that you feel like you get because you have money. It's the access that you get because you... And it does give you access. And it does give you control. You're allowed conversations because of money that you do not, you're not allowed to have because you don't have it. It's true. It's true. But if those things begin to define who you are, they will destroy you. Because there's always another club to join. There's always an inner circle. There's an inner ring, as C.S. Lewis says. There's always another group that's it, that you're always striving to be a part of. But what the gospel says to you, regardless of how much the Lord has given you to be stewards over, is that he has brought you into the most inner ring of the world. That is the inner ring of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It doesn't get more inner ringish than that. 
And he loves you, and he sings over you, and he accepts you for who you are. Broken sinner though you are. And the church, therefore, is the only organization in the world whose requirement for membership is the admission that you are not worthy of admission. Because Jesus Christ makes you worthy. And he brings you into the inner ring. So money is not a defining principle. It's just, it is an extension of your dignity if it's used well. Are you defined by what you have? Or do you use it as an extension of your dignity? Second, you have to also trust that your Savior knows what you need. Listen, he owns a cattle on a thousand hills, and he knows that some of you in this church right now, he knows that money is a... It is anxiety-inducing in your house. And he knows the conversations that you and your spouse are having. And he's with you in that conversation. You're not alone. Some of you are facing retirement, and you're scared. He's with you in that conversation. Some of you are wondering how you're going to make ends meet at the end of the month. He is with you in that conversation. And he loves you. He's not mad at you. He's not, all the prosperity gospel preachers, please hear this. He is not like taking money away from you because you're not faithful to him. He's not rewarding you with more money because you are. He owns a cattle on a thousand hills and he knows what you need. The question is, are you, am I okay with that? Because we look at God and say, no, God, you're not good because the idea of the good life that I had in my mind is different than this. And so, therefore, I'm going to go try it on my own terms. And at that precise moment when you begin to say that to the Lord, that's the area where we have to move back to the gospel and be able to say, God, you are good even when my circumstances don't tell me that that's the case. And I rely not on the circumstances of my life to define me, but I rely on what God's word says of me. And God's word says of me that between two thieves, my Savior was sacrificed for you with his hands open wide to receive all those who would by faith put their trust in him. And his arms are open wide so that he can take you and embrace you and hug you and sing over you that he is proud of you and that he loves you and that he is okay with you. You're not okay with you so, many, so much of the time. He loves you, not the idea that you're trying to present to people about you. He loves the real you. Robert Murray McShane was a Scottish preacher, and 150 years ago, he preached a sermon, and he says, if you want to be like Christ, you must be like him in your giving. And though he was rich for our sake, he became poor. He did not consider it robbery to be like God. He quoted Tyndale's old English Bible, but... He emptied himself of his wealth and an objection. Somebody said, but my money is my own. And McShane says, well, Christ might have said, my blood is my own. My life is my own. Then where would you be? Objection. Well, the poor are undeserving. They don't work. Answer, Christ might have said the same thing. You're a wicked rebel against my father's law. Shall I lay down my life for you? I will give to the good angels, but no, he left the 99 and he came after you. He gave his blood for the undeserving, the sinner. Well, the poor may abuse it. Well, Christ might have said the same thing and with far greater truth. How much do you abuse his grace? 
Christ knew that thousands would trample upon his blood under their feet, that most would despise it, that many would make an excuse for sinning more, but yet he still gave his own blood. Oh, dear Christian, if you would be like Christ, give much, give often, give freely, he says, to the vile, to the poor, to the thankless, to the undeserving. Christ is glorious and happy, and so you will be. It is not your money I want. It is your happiness, Jesus says. It is more blessed, remember his words? It is more blessed to give than receive. It is not your money that Jesus wants, friends. He already has it. He wants your happiness and he wants your joy. And the question for us is, can we be a people in the midst of a wall so Oklahoma, like the early Christians were in the midst of Rome, who were conservative with their bodies and promiscuous with their money, unlike pagan Rome that was promiscuous with their bodies and very stingy with their money. It changed Julian, the emperor of Rome's complete perspective of Christians because of how generous they were as a people. Are we like that? We want to be. The session of this church wants us to be a church that's generous and that gives well as a church. And I want to just commend you and say that many of you are doing that. Though we don't institutionalize it as a Trinity event, there are many of you who give lots of money to things in the city, and we are so thankful that you do that. You're stewarding your gifts very well. And many of you give your time, you give your resources, your talents. Thank you. You don't have to like say it's a Trinity event for you to be able to give. Like Many of you are giving, and you're being generous. And I just want to say thank you for doing that. That's awesome. And we want to fuel that kind of culture. And it doesn't matter whose label is on it. We just want to be the hands and feet of Jesus in this world. So thank you for those of you who are generous and are continuing to be so. But for those of us who need to hear that our stewardship issue is an extension of our dignity, need to remember that if you're not careful, what God has given to be an extension of your dignity will define you and then it will destroy you. Unlike Timothy Bontrager, you don't have to walk into a house and steal money to actually break the Eighth Commandment. But God has made you stewards over many things, and he wants you to steward those things well and for his glory. And the response for us and the way to heal is to recognize that money is an extension of our dignity. It does not define us and move toward repentance if you're letting it define you. And you can move to repentance because Jesus knows what you need. He's the only safe harbor from the economic downturn you'll ever see. And he loves you. Faith in Christ, in his finished work for you, in his work ethic, and in his generosity, paves the way for you to be content with what he has given you. Keep your lives free of the love of money, Hebrews says. Hebrews 13, 5, and be content with what you have. Jesus has given you his life, and that is more than enough. But is that okay with you? Let's pray. Father, would you help us to recognize that you have made us stewards over many things, and we're thankful for that. Help us to steward our possessions in a way that honor and glorify you. Help us to prayerfully consider how you want us to enjoy the things you've given us, for there is 
beautiful things in the enjoyment of what you've given us. That's why you've given them to us. But help us also to recognize that we are stewards, not only for our benefit, but for the benefit of your kingdom, the benefit of others, for your glory and for our happiness and joy. And lead us into repentance, we pray, because your gift to us is more than enough. In your name we pray, amen.